love, peace, unity, understanding, harmony amongst one another. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Rip, roaring, ready to go. I give you my sports talk podcast with entertaining value. I give you the most entertaining, thought-provoking podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to podcasts and you will not be disappointed. I give you football, basketball, baseball, college football, college basketball, UFC, MMA, and of course, I love of my life, the Georgetown Hoyas. And sometimes I might go a little bit farther and talk about what else is happening in the world. Wendell's World in Sports, the most awesome podcast that you can listen to. Rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the most unique, entertaining, and compelling sports talk podcast you'll ever listen to. Let's be great. Let's be great. Wendell's World in Sports with the one and only Wendell Wallace. Giannis charging down the lane to the rim. Double clutch. No good. Tipped in. Giannis tipped it home. Subscribe, rate, and review anywhere and everywhere you listen to this and all your favorite podcasts. And now, from Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Rip, Roin, and ready to rumble, Wendell Wallace. And welcome to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on this got today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World of Sports. Good morning, good evening, Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Shalom. Assalamu alaikum. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to get down on, of course, and discuss today in the world of sports. I'm recording this on a Monday morning in the month of March. So if we're speaking about sports, if we're speaking about the month of March, we are speaking about the March Madness, and I'm not just talking about what is going on in the NFL as far as free agency is concerned and with quarterbacks being from one team to another. I'm also speaking about the tournament, March Madness. Yes, of course, this tournament started this past Thursday. Of course, the tradition of taking Thursday and Friday off, watching the games the entire day, whether you're going to be taking the days off, whether you're going to be sneaking a peek during work, whether you're going to be doing what you can to uh, follow the first couple of days while you're at work, while you're at school, doing whatever. It's a tradition unlike any other. And then spending that Saturday and Sunday, that weekend, also watching the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. I, I, I've said this before when speaking about what's happening with the college basketball tournament for their, for uh, me this season. Not not into it, man. I mean, I'm watching, I'm following, but you know, going into this tournament for the first time in a long time, man, I was pretty ignorant about the landscape of what's happening in college basketball because of the fact that my Georgetown Hoya stunk out loud, 6-25, Losers of 21 games in a row. I mean, when you're that putrid and when you're that pathetic and because of the love and devotion and passion till death do us part when it comes to my loyalty to the Georgetown Hoyas, despite the fact that they were one of the worst teams in college basketball regardless of level, that I watched every single one of their games. And after every single one of their games, uh, my eyes were bleeding profusely. 
and the fact that I had to quickly turn to NBA basketball to revive my love of the game because watching Georgetown this season will ruin anybody's love of basketball if you watch those guys play. So, man, after watching Georgetown basketball, man, I just couldn't bring myself to uh, follow college basketball like I normally do knowing how badly Georgetown was this season. So, going into this tournament, yes, I was going to watch, but uh, it was a situation where I was going to have to be playing catch-up the entire time because I didn't have the opportunity to watch Kansas or Gonzaga or Duke or Arkansas or Texas or Texas Tech or Arizona or Gonzaga or UCLA. I didn't have the opportunity to watch any of those teams because I was just so depressed after watching a Georgetown loss that college basketball, watching another college basketball game with some good teams, definitely I wasn't up to it emotionally and mentally. So, man, this um, this NCAA tournament, it's been pretty good going into the uh, Sweet 16. If you take a look at some of the regions, if you take a look at the West regions, if you take a look at some of the upcoming games, when you have Gonzaga playing Arkansas on Thursday, you have the number two seed in the West region, Duke playing Texas Tech. When you have also in the South region, number two, Villanova playing the 11th seed in Michigan Wolverines. When you have the number one seed in the South, Arizona playing the number five seed, Houston. When you have in the East region on Friday, the number eight seed, University of North Carolina playing the number four seed at UCLA. Bruins, when you also have the number three seed, Purdue Boilermakers playing the number 15 seed in Cinderella team, St. Peter's in the Midwest region. You have the number 11 seeded Iowa State. Cyclones playing against the number 10 Miami Hurricanes, the U, and of course, number one Kansas in the Midwestern region. They're going to be playing the number four seeded Providence that those games in the Midwest region will be on Friday. So over the past four days, you know, the storylines and the hooks and what we're talking about and what the big storyline is, of course, it all revolves around St. Peter's. They're upset of number to see Kentucky, a Kentucky team that many people thought going into this tournament were favorites to at least make it to the Final Four and make a really strong run into the Final Four at the number 15 seed. St. Peter's is officially this season's tournament darlings going into the Sweet 16, where once again they'll be playing. They're going to be playing the uh, Purdue Boilermakers. Didn't have an opportunity to watch them play some of the games that I did watch, though. I had the the most intriguing game that I saw this uh, past weekend, and yes, North Carolina almost choking away a 25-point lead with bad refereeing and bad calls for Baylor to get back into the game before UNC prevailing in overtime. Yes, we had Houston being very impressive in their victories, Villanova being very impre impressive in their victories, Michigan a team that a couple of weeks ago were on the outside looking in when you're speaking about their availability, their qualifications to make it to the NCAA tournament. Now they find themselves in the Sweet 16, a team of disappointment throughout most of the season, now starting to play up, their, up to their uh, potential. There was a lot of interesting, intriguing games on the weekend. The one thing that I wanted to see, or the one game that intrigued me the most and that I watched the most closely was Gonzaga versus Memphis, the game that Gonzaga won, it was uh, 80 or 93, what was it, 82-78. And one of the reasons why I was so intrigued watching that game, it was the potential lottery picks of Chet Holmgren, Jalen Duran, and even Amani Bates, even though technically he's not eligible to be draftable until the year 2023 because of age restrictions. But I wanted to see that matchup between Chet Holmgren, and I wanted to see that matchup between him versus Jalen Duran. 
um, didn't have an opportunity. I saw Chet Holmgren play when he was a sophomore in high school at the time he was being recruited by Georgetown. So um, they had a tournament out here in the summer for AAU basketball, and I had the opportunity to go up to uh, Bishop Gorman and uh, watch Chet Holmgren play as a very slender sophomore when he was on the uh, AAU squad for Minnesota, a team that also featured Jalen Shrugs, a guy who looked like, yeah, he was ready for the NBA. His, he had a body and athleticism for the NBA back when he was a senior in high school. So I had the opportunity up close, personal, to watch an AAU basketball game, a couple of AAU basketball games with Holmgren as, the, uh, as one of the players. So getting to see him now for the first time in a little bit, because as I mentioned before, really didn't pay attention, didn't pay too much attention to uh, Gonzaga during the regular season. It was just interesting to see. I was interested to see how he would do against the more physical players in terms of going up against Duran, a guy who's also projected to be a uh, lottery pick. And I don't know. I guess you could say that even though Gonzaga won the game, there were some questions that I had for Holmgren coming out of the contest. He had nine points. Nine rebounds, a couple of assists, played, uh, what, 20-something, 30-something minutes. Duran also in foul trouble for a lot of the game. It was kind of a standoff. I really didn't take anything away one way or the other in terms of Holmgren. Many people thinking that he's going to be one of the top three draft picks chosen in this upcoming NBA draft. It really didn't see anything one way or the other. I'm going to be interested to see the other opportunities that he's going to have moving forward as the... Uh, Gonzaga basketball team plays better competition and with players who are going to be more draft eligible and have skills, physical skills that can relate better for them having an NBA career. It'll be interesting to see Chet Holmgren uh, play against those guys. But at the number one draft pick, one of the things that kind of took pause when you're speaking about Holmgren is the fact that he's being compared to Christoph Porzingis. Now, is that the Christoph Porzingis that we're going to be speaking about Holmgren being the baby, the baby Porzingis, which he's been called. Are we speaking about the Christoph Porzingis that was with the New York Knicks and before he tore his ACL? Or are we speaking about the Christoph Porzingis who floundered as the Robin to Luka Doncic's Batman in Dallas and now is working on his third team in his career with the uh, Washington Wizards? Which, which exactly are we going to be speaking about? when we're going to be speaking about Chet Holmgren. I see a guy with, I don't know, man. I mean, he could be Frank Kaminsky, or he could be a guy who could uh, be an important cog in the team that could win a championship. His ceiling in terms of uh, his ceiling and his floor are so great. And he's only been playing college basketball for one year. It's kind of hard to kind of foresee five, ten years down the road what type of career he's going to have, or you could be definitive in terms of what type of, uh, what type of career that uh, Holmgren is going to have. Seven feet, uh, pretty decent athleticism, but he doesn't wow you with that, has, uh, his athleticism. His three-point shot has been inconsistent throughout this tournament, even though he shot in the high 30 percentile during the regular season in his freshman year at Gonzaga. I mean, he could put the ball on the floor, but he's not really you know, looking to blow by anybody. I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about uh, Holmgren moving forward in terms of uh, what he's going to be like as a NBA player, and if you're going to be speaking about him going as the number one, two, three, or even number four pick in the draft, all likelihood they're going to be asking him to uh, be a guy who's going to be 
making all-star games, guys who are going to be uh, having the responsibility of being leaders in terms of winning championships and being on teams that have the opportunity to win championships. So when I look at some of these guys, man, it's like, we'll see. We'll see because Jabari Smith for Auburn didn't show me that that much any uh, that that much either. So from some of the highlights that I've seen of him this past uh, season, he looks like a uh, another version of Paul George when you're thinking about Jabari Smith of Auburn. So when you get to the uh, tournament now, man, and Georgetown's not in, and I'm, I'm mainly looking for what are some of the uh, prospects, what are some of the guys who are supposed to be lottery picks, what are some of the guys who are supposed to be potential impact players once they make it in the NBA, how are they doing? Because you can uh, really have your stock rise with an excellent tournament, or you can have questions and have your stock fall if you have yourself a bad tournament. So when it comes to situations like that, I always like to pay a little bit closer attention to those type of things. Wendell's World and Sports I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about what's happening in the NCAA tournament. I want to go back to the question that I asked, though, once again, because, look, you know, we can sit there and we can speak about the games coming up. I think that uh, Arizona versus Houston could be the best game of the tournament so far. I think that uh, Gonzaga going up against another physical team, an athletic team in Arkansas is going to be an intriguing matchup. I think that uh, Michigan in Villanova, if you're looking for a double-digit seed to make a run, I think that uh, Michigan has an excellent chance to beat Villanova, who's playing very good basketball, headed into the Sweet 16. I think a team like like Miami, one of the most, I don't know what you can call them, man. That team is fearless. That team is relentless. That team is something else. That team is athletic. I mean, that's a team that to uh, where they could cause a lot of trouble going into the Sweet 16 and potentially Final 8 and Final 4. So going up against Iowa State, when you're speaking about contrast, the styles, um, as far as offensive efficiency and, and tempo was concerned, that's going to be an intriguing game. Again, I think Houston moving, I think, ah, man, I want to say, I'm not going to call them Gonzaga just yet, but I see a lot of Gonzaga similarities in terms of where Gonzaga was making their march up to the type of program that they have right now. I think Kelvin Sampson in the seventh year, seventh season coaching the Cougars has done a remarkable, remarkable job winning about 72% of his games. But when you think about teams outside of the Power Six conferences, when you're speaking about those Power Six conferences being the Big Ten, the Big East, the ACC, the Pac-12, the Big 12, and the SEC, outside of those power conferences, I mean, you have Gonzaga, how they made their march coming from the WCC, and also Houston coming from the AAC, the two squads that have a realistic chance of doing some things, Houston making it to the Final Four this year. I think those two teams uh, outside of those conferences are now the really the only two teams outside of the Power Six conferences who can consistently on a year-in and year-out basis be true contenders for that NCAA championship. Uh, that NCAA championship. And as I mentioned before, that game going up this uh, upcoming week against Arizona is going to be it's going to be something to watch. As long as we continue to watch the uh, Mike Krzyzewski final go around the track in terms of him trying to win a championship in in an Elite Eight regional championship game between Duke and Gonzaga, which would be a rematch of a game that they played November 26th 
of this year in which Duke won at two by two points out here at the T-Mobile Arena in Vegas. They have that game, Mark Few versus Mike Krzyzewski, Gonzaga versus Duke in the West Champion, West Regional Championship game. That would, uh, that would be quite tasty and quite delicious to devour and take a look at. I would most definitely be interested in watching Pillar the Post that game. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So let me go back once again, man. What brings you to the attraction of wanting to watch NCAA basketball as far as the tournament is concerned? Again, is it the situation where it's almost just like tradition? We're just speaking about, man, you know, Thursday and Friday for the longest that I can remember. I've always been about, you know, that full day in terms of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, watching those games. It's almost like a, it's almost like a celebration, you know, getting to the opportunity to uh, watch those games. When you're speaking about uh, spring just being around the corner. Out here in Vegas, you have one of the largest tourist days or weekends. In the first four days of March Madness, where the MGM Grand and the Mandalay and all the other racist sports books in those casinos are packed because of the enthusiasm of folks coming from all over the country to uh, go ahead and gamble and to uh, watch those basketball games. So is it, is it is that is it part tradition for you guys, which make the NCAA tournament and March Madness so fun? Is it, is it the situation where you know, unlike any other sport out there on the planet? If you really think about it, if you're not, if you're thinking about European football, if you're thinking about the MLS, if you're thinking about the NBA playoffs, if you're thinking about any other playoff scenario in any other sport across the globe, college basketball with 64 teams, no, not 68 because the first four teams play in the play-in game, but for the 64 teams that make it to the tournament, there's no other opportunity, there's no other sport where you have the opportunity to win a tournament which has been given to so many teams. 64 teams with the opportunity to win a national championship. Now, we know when everything is bogged down and when everything is realistically put together, that on any given year, that there's going to only be about five or six or seven teams realistically with a chance to win a championship. But you know what? Just give me the opportunity, opportunity man. As James Brown said, just open up the door, and I'll get it myself. So for a lot of these teams, whether you're in the Power 5 conferences or you're in the low major, if you qualify for the playoff by winning your conference championships, you get an opportunity. 64 teams get that opportunity more than any other sport out there. So is that the, is that the allure? Is that the attraction for you to go ahead and watch this tournament? One of the great reasons, of course, because as we know, CBS, who's been holding this thing forever, I mean, they're always speaking about, hey, man, you know, guess what? One shining moment. We're always talking about Cinderella. Who's going to be that team? Who's going to be the team that's going to go ahead and uh, shock the world this year or this tournament has been St. Peter's? I've always said this. I've always mentioned this when we speak about Cinderella. That is a misnomer. Kind of like, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Kind of like the nonsense of Vegas is a 24-hour town. It might be when you're on the Strip. You go two miles off the Strip, though, there ain't nothing open past past 9 o'clock if you want to get something to eat unless you're going to go to a fast food joint. So if you want to go get some groceries, you better go before 11 o'clock because after that, the stores are going to be closed. If you want to do anything, you better go ahead and get it done before the night falls. 
in Vegas for the most part if you're on daylight saving time because once that sun goes down and that time hits 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, it is over. So that number, that 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 uh, selling point for Vegas talking about it's the town that never, never sleeps. Yes, it does. Oh, yes, it does. So when you speak about the false advertising in terms of what the NCAA tournament brings as a as a hook to reel you in to watch these NCAA games, it's always the you never know what Cinderella is going to happen. Who's going to be Cinderella? Who's going to be that team from the lower tier conferences that's going to take out one of the power schools? Who's going to be that school? Who's going to be that squad? You know, we always play into that. And that's what's supposed to bring the allure. And when we have the makings, the machinations of an upset, when a Kentucky, when a Duke, when a Kansas, when one of the blue bloods of the sport, one of the top teams of the sport, when a two seed or a three seed or a four seed or a five seed is about to go down to a school from one of the mid-major conferences or a low-major conferences, how they build that thing up. Ooh, how they follow that. How does Twitter explode and social media go off when they talk about that and for 24 hours, 48 hours, 96 hours, depending on how long that run lasts for that Cinderella team before the clock strikes midnight and they turn back into a pumpkin. How much of the attention that they get, how much exposure that they get, which is going to help the university, which is going to be helping the athletic department, which is going to be helping some other teams, which is going to be helping enrollment, where a St. Peter's can go ahead and beat Kentucky and then go ahead and beat a Murray State. And now they're in the Sweet 16 and this small school from New Jersey, all of a sudden it's going to be getting publicity and attention and the spotlight on them that they never thought that they would get. How wonderful would that be? Is that Are those type of stories what draw you in? Because let me tell you something. You could be fooled by that, but I'm going to tell you this right now. There has never been a true Cinderella basketball team. By my definition, there has never been a true Cinderella basketball team. And what I mean by that is, there's never been that team, which I consider Cinderella, which from the low to mid-major conference has ever, in terms of me watching the NCAA tournament, which has been going on now for over 40 years, there has never been a true Cinderella. Oh, there's been some teams that we didn't think could make runs that made runs and have made it to the Elite Eight, have made it to the Sweet 16, have made it to the Final Four. Oh, yes, indeed. George Mason a few years ago, Loyola of Chicago a couple of years ago, BCU with Shaka Smart a few years ago. Oh, yes, those teams. Davidson with a young man by the name of Steph Curry leading the charge, making it to the final eight before they lost to uh, Kansas. Oh, yes, there have been opportunities. There have been examples of teams such as those who didn't come from a Power 5 conference, which had made those runs. But my definition of a team that wins a championship that's a Cinderella team. If Davidson, if George Mason, if VCU, if one of those squads would have came and won that championship, that would have been Cinderella. Even Butler, I don't think, was truly a Cinderella. Would you take a look at, A, the coach of that team, and B, the players that they had on that team when they lost to uh, Duke and they lost in back-to-back NCAA championship games. When you get to the point where you're going back-to-back in terms of making it to the championship, you no longer qualify as being a Cinderella story or being a David 
going up against a Goliath when you had the talent and the coaching acumen that those Butler teams had. So, as I mentioned before, man, in my lifetime, no team has ever, as a Cinderella, ever won an NCAA championship. So, in essence, there's never been a quote-unquote Cinderella team. Now, many people are going to uh, take a look at this and say, well, wait a minute, man. I'm old enough to remember the 1983 North Carolina State team. I'm old enough to remember the 1985 Villanova basketball team, which beat my man right here in my Georgetown Hoyas back then. Those are the two examples that people use when they talk about quote-unquote Cinderella teams. When they bring up Villanova in 85, and then they bring up North Carolina State in 83. Let me tell you something right now, man, from a guy who's been loving basketball since the uh, early 80s mid and uh, late 70s. Those two squads, they were not Cinderella's. Their stories were unbelievable. Their runs were fantastic. Their wins were surprising. Them winning the championship, glorious, wonderful, fantastic, all of those type of things. But it was not Cinderella. If you take a look at those squads for real. Awesome stories. Fabulous stories. They weren't Cinderella. If you take a look at that 1983 North Carolina State basketball team, which in Albuquerque, Lorenzo Charles followed up dunk off of the Derek Wittenberg air ball, 54-52, and Jim Valvano is running around the court looking for somebody to hug. That basketball team, number one, played in the ACC, and I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give a damn what your record is. If you're playing in the ACC, just like in 1985 when the Big East was at the zenith and you had three squads from that conference in the Final Four, ain't no Cinderella's coming from a Big East squad, from a Big East conference. Ain't happening. But getting back to 1983 and that North Carolina State squad, man, that wasn't any type of uh, Cinderella. They had Derek Wittenberg and Sidney Lowe, man. Sidney Lowe from DeMatha High School being coached by one of the greatest coaches of any level in Morgan Wooten coming to NC State as a recruit that was being that was being recruited by the top-tier schools when he was in high school. Same with, David, same with uh, Derek Wittenberg. Same with Lorenzo Charles. Same with Kozel McQueen. Those, those, those guys were being recruited by all the major programs. So don't hand me this Cinderella team when you're speaking about those guys who were high school superstars then going and playing four years especially the backcourt at North Carolina State. Going into that season, that 1982-83 season, Sidney Lowe and Derek Wurttemberg were considered one of the better backcourts in the country, and to start the season, NC State was ranked in the top 25. Any team that starts the season ranked in the top 25 with one of the best backcourts in the country going into that season and were playing in the ACC can't be considered Cinderella. Cannot be considered Cinderella, especially the only reason why North Carolina State got themselves in the predicament that they were in to where they had to win the ACC tournament just to qualify for the tournament. And then winning in overtime against Pepperdine and ending Ralph Sampson's career at Virginia when Virginia was the number one team in the country in the Elite Eight and then going ahead and winning the championship against Faisalam Jamma, one of the most exciting athletic basketball teams of that era. When you're speaking about Larry Michaud and Michael Young and Akeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and Alvin Franklin being coached by the Hall of Famer Guy Lewis, one of the best basketball teams of that era. Lost the game only because Alvin Franklin and the boys couldn't make free throws down the stretch. But that was a team in North Carolina State. Derek Wittenberg, middle of the season, suffered a broken foot. 
and caused him to miss games. And without Wittenberg, which was North Carolina State's best player, that's where the season ran off the rails a little bit in terms of the expectations that North Carolina State had. When Wittenberg recovered, they caught that lightning in the bottle, they caught fire, and the rest, shall we say, is history. That's a great story. That's an awesome story. That's a wonderful run. That's not Cinderella. That's not Cinderella. Just like 1985 with Villanova over Georgetown. Hey, man, earlier that season, Georgetown beat Philadelphia, you beat uh, Villanova at Philadelphia 57-53 in overtime. And they're just speaking about the team that Villanova had with Ed Pinckney, who was a top 10 pick. Uh, in that up in that next NBA draft, when you think of the uh, McLean brothers, when you think of Harold Jensen, when you think about those guys that played Harold Presley that played on that team, man, those guys were used to playing against Georgetown. You got to remember Patrick Ewing and David Wingate and Reggie Williams and uh, uh, Horde Brodnack and Perry McDonald and Michael Jackson and those great teams and those that great squad that uh, Georgetown had, one of the greatest of that era, despite the fact that they lost to a bunch of guys in Villanova who decided to sniff cocaine before the game started. That's right, I'm still bitter. But this was a situation where, hey, man, those guys had played Georgetown five, six, eight times during their career and even more throughout their careers. They knew what they were getting into. They knew what they were uh, dealing with. And when you had players going to Villanova such as Jensen, such as Presley, such as the McLean brothers, such as Ed Pickney, those guys have been playing against those players from Georgetown and Syracuse and other teams ever since probably they were sophomores in high school. When you're speaking about AAU and when you're speaking about at that time summer camps and when you're speaking about the competition that those guys were playing against because they were such all-stars and such high-level players when they were in high school. There was no fear. There was no uh, trepidation. There was no confusion when it came to Villanova playing Georgetown. Villanova knew exactly what they were doing, and because of the results that they had playing against Georgetown, they knew that they had a shot. Now, it took the McLean brothers doing lines of cocaine and them shooting 80% for the field in the second half and a no 35-second shot clock to win the basketball game, but yet and still. Don't give me some stuff about Villanova being Cinderella when you had that many opportunities and you had that type of talent on their team. Again, great story, unbelievable story, fantastic story, not Cinderella, at least in my opinion. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So getting back to speaking about, you know, what's the allure? What's the uh, deal that brings you into liking the NCAA tournament? As I mentioned before, the story of Cinderella or the opportunity of Cinderella, there will never be, even with the watered-down version of what college basketball is now because the best players either go to the G League or they stay one year and then they leave, there will never be a true Cinderella to ever win a championship. Never. I don't think there's going to be a school that don't call Gonzaga, don't call Houston Cinderellas because they're not. I'm speaking about squads going into, like, uh, if, if a school from the SWAC or a school from the MEAC won a championship, that's more than Cinderella. That's like, you know, the world is ending, unbelievable type of stuff. <laughs> if, if, if those things are going to happen. But, you know, a true Cinderella's coming from the lower tier conferences, coming from the Ivy or coming from the SWAC or coming from the MEAC or coming from the low tier uh, um, conferences is never going to happen. 
never going to happen. One thing, though, that I was thinking about in terms of why do people find the NCAA basketball tournament so attractive, so alluring, what brings them in. There's a lot of college football postseason, bowl season elements in March Madness, if you really think about it. And I say it because of this. You, you can end the season. If you're a college football program playing Division One football, you can end the season on a successful note in college football, whether you win the championship or not, or even you can be you could have continuous successful seasons without even sniffing the opportunity to win a championship because of those bowl games. You don't have to win a championship to consistently have successful teams. You you can go to bowl games such as second tier bowl games such as the Myrtle Beach Bowl or the Guaranteed Rate Bowl or the or the Gator Bowl or the um or the Duke's Mayo Bowl or the Frisco Bowl or the Birmingham Bowl or the <laughs> or the Gasparilla Bowl or Independent Bowl year after year after year after year after year. Some years you may win, some years you may lose. But guess what, man? If you're one of these smaller schools, if you're one of these schools that aren't Ohio State or Clemson or Texas or Oklahoma or Alabama or Georgia, if you're not at that level of college football, you could still have an extremely successful season without ever sniffing the opportunity to get yourself an opportunity to win a uh, basketball, uh, win a uh, football championship. Now, I just mentioned the fact about 64 teams having themselves the opportunity to win a championship, but then also stating the realistic statement of there's only year after year about five, six, seven teams at the very most that can win themselves a championship. But most of those schools, most of those programs are coming from the Power Six conferences. But because of the tournament being so expansive, and so many teams getting in, based upon expectations, based upon realistic expectations, just like football programs from mid-tier conferences or teams in Power 5 conferences like Mississippi State or Northwestern or Wake Forest or, you know, those type of schools, winning the Gasparilla Bowl, Duke winning the Independence Bowl, Georgia Tech winning the Duke's Mayo Bowl, um... You know, one of those type of one of those type of deals is still the coach being able to keep his job because he can come up for every contract extension and say, "Hey, look, man, I'm in a bowl game every year that I was the coach of this team. Give me some more money. Give me some more years. Give me some more guarantees." It's the same thing with the NCAA basketball tournament. We all know, like for instance, this season in the tournament, we all knew that Montana Tech wasn't going to do anything. We knew Yale wasn't going to do anything. We knew Delaware and Cal State Fullerton and and Wright State, and Colgate, and South Dakota State, and Longwood. Longwood lost, lost to Georgetown. That's how bad they are. And Georgia State, we, we, we knew that these teams aren't doing anything. We know these teams aren't going anywhere. And much as we cheered, as much as this is a great story, and how much we enjoy St. Peter's breaking up the monopoly of Power 5 squads from the Blue Bloods programs going to the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8, we all know that St. Peter's ain't beating Purdue. We all know that this dream, this ride ends at the Sweet 16. But guess what? For those schools, just making it to the tournament, that's good enough. That's good enough. If you're from the Ivy League, 
If you're from the conference where Colgate is in, or South Dakota State, or Georgia State, or Longwood, or Montana Tech, the Big Sky, if you can consistently make the NCAA tournament as a coach, your employment there is golden if you can do that. Who cares if you win a game? Gravy. That's even better. That's even awesome. For Montana Tech or Yale or St. Peter's or Colgate or Georgia State or, um, or, or, or Norfolk State or one of those type of schools, for them to win one game, for them to win one game, and the tournament will be the equivalent of a basketball program like Duke, Kentucky, Baylor, uh, Villanova, Gonzaga, North Carolina, that would be the equivalent of those guys making it to the Final Four or winning themselves a championship if one of those squads could win themselves just one game in the tournament. And St. Peter's beating Kentucky? Who cares what happened? The rest of the narrative is is mute. If St. Peter's on Thursday gets their doors blown open by Purdue and they lose by 25 or 30, that's not going to be the narrative. Just like when Gulf, Florida Gulf Coast wiped the floor of my Georgetown Hoyas and basically ended their program going on now for about eight years, put Georgetown into a position where they haven't recovered yet, and then beat San Diego State to make it to the Sweet 16. Nobody remembers the fact of, they, of them losing in the Sweet 16. I think it was even the Florida. I think they lost to Florida. It was all about that first weekend of the season. That's what made Florida Gulf Coast. That's what made those squads, man. So if you win a basketball game, like whenever, remember when Pete Carrill from Princeton used to always upset a team in the first round of the tournament? They beat UCLA one year. They almost beat Georgetown one year, this, that, and the other. The fact that they were even competing against teams like that, Pete Carrill could have coached there forever. The fact that they just, they just made the tournament. So, you know, realistic expectations St. Petersburg is a nice story. They're not a Cinderella because St. Peter's, St. Peter's is not going to win the national championship. Now, St. Peter's wins the national championship. Now we're talking. Now that's Cinderella in my estimation, in my opinion. But it ain't going to happen. They're going to get the doors blown open by Purdue, and it'll be the end of the story. It'll be the end of the discussion, and then we can get back to teams who are having a realistic shot of winning a championship, like a Houston, like a Duke, like a Villanova, like a Gonzaga, like a... Uh, Arizona, even like a, a Miami, one of those type of squads. And none of those squads, if the number 10 and 11 seeds in this tournament remaining outside of the number 15 seed, St. Peter's, a number 11, Michigan, number 11, Iowa State, number 10, Miami, if those teams go on to win the championship, they're going to be talking about their seeds and they're going to be talking about the comebacks and they're going to be talking about where they were in the middle of the season, where they were on the outside looking in to get themselves into a tournament, that doesn't matter, man. Great narrative, but guess what? They finally lived up to their expectations, won themselves a championship, got hot when the time was right. If you take a look at that talent, hey, understandable for them to, if everything falls right for them to win a championship. Great story, wonderful, hip-hip hooray, Cinderella? I don't think so. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you can be with us. One more thing that I want to uh, get to, though. So when you're speaking about the NCAA tournament, what drives you in, what makes it uh, 
what makes it attractive for you to watch. Speaking about Cinderella, speaking about the opportunities for teams to uh, compete for a championship, speaking about traditions, speaking about the opportunity to watch a multitude of games um, for that four-day period and everything that comes with it. Nice, very nice, very nice indeed. But uh, for me, as I mentioned before, it's all about with Georgetown not going to be playing. Doggone it, I'm uh, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it at all. So, yeah, man, one, one of the things I, I really wish is the um, the disrespect. I don't know if you want to call it the disrespect, the embarrassing, humiliating results of the HBCU teams, man. This season, Texas Southern from the SWAC got uh, their asses waxed by Kansas, 83-56. Baylor beat up on Norfolk State from the MEAC, 85-49. Man. Look, I'm not saying that these squads need to be ranked or need to be seated 14 or 13 or 11 or 8 or some knucklehead situation like that. But, man, if they're not playing in the playing game, it's always a situation where they're playing either the number one or number two seed in the tournament itself. Could you at least slide us down and let us play the fifth-ranked team or the sixth-best team? Oh, look, I'm not asking for any special privileges or anything like that. I'm not expecting teams from the SWAC and the MEAC to do anything. But, man, and that's what's just in the men's. Year after year after year after year, those guys just get blown out. I'll be watching the uh, SWAC and the MEAC tournament, and these guys win the uh, tournament, the conference championship. These guys are dancing in the street like uh, Martha and the Vandellas and dancing on the ceiling like Lionel Richie. And they're, you know, jubilant. And it's like, man, do you guys realize what's going to be happening to you all in the next week? When you guys are going to be are, are losing my 35 and a half empty gym and getting dunked on and getting embarrassed and humiliated. Now, it's good for the school because you get that money. And when you're speaking about the discrepancy in terms of how much money a blue blood school or a school from a power six conference is getting compared to schools that are in the SWAC in the MEAC. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm like, we'll, we'll take that as whooping as long as those checks don't bounce. But, um, man, I just sure wish somehow, some way they could somehow maybe recruit better, cheat better, I don't know, do something, have better NILs, I don't know, get a disgruntled player from a major school at a major conference to uh, transfer down to uh, the SWAC and the MEAC. Too bad McCor McCor for Howard University didn't pan out. One of the five recruits or a, top, a five-star recruit who decided that he was going to play at Howard and uh, didn't work out for him. We thought maybe that would be a trend of seeing more four- and five-star recruits, more one-and-dones, more NBA talented type of players coming out of high school to go ahead and play for a Howard or play for a North Carolina A&T or play for a FabU or play for a Prairie View State or play for a Grambling or play for a Norfolk or play for a Virginia Union or play for one of those historically black uh, colleges or universities. But not happening, not happening. The score, just thinking about humiliation, and it, and it doesn't even, it doesn't even just end with the men in a tournament, as far as HBCUs getting whacked. Was uh, listening to the score or seeing the highlights or whatever. I don't know how I found out about the Howard University women's basketball team, and they were playing. Uh, South Carolina, Dawn Staley, one of the best coaches, regardless of gender, regardless of level of competition, 
doing her thing. South Carolina beat Howard. I forgot what the score was, but it wasn't close. But I remember the score at halftime. South Carolina led Howard at half. 44 to 4. 44 to 4. 44 to 4. 4. <laughs> Just like, what? Ladies, was it worth winning the conference championship to get grubbed like that? But for the school, yes, because we need to check. But for you ladies personally, I don't know, maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you could speak about, hey, you know what? I was, uh, I participated in the NCAA tournament. Just don't go any further than that. Hey, you know what? Some of the great players that came out of South Carolina and played in the WNBA and played on the Olympics and played overseas and made a name for themselves and possibly are in the Hall of Fame and great players and all those type of things. I had the opportunity when I was in college to participate against those ladies in the NCAA tournament. Don't go any farther than that. So, Mom, what was the final score? Well, how did you guys do? Mind your business. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So, yeah, man, the NCAA tournament, rocking and rolling, doing a thing. Why do you love watching so much? No right or wrong answers. I'm not here to say the reason why you watch is ridiculous or just wrong or anything like that. Hey, man, if you enjoy watching it, continue to watch. But uh multitude of reasons to watch, um, I guess... For me, without Georgetown in it, it hurts, it stings, but my love of college basketball, even when the reason, even the center of the universe when it comes to college basketball and my love for college basketball, Georgetown is the joke of jokes this season, even without them in there and knowing what they're all about, NCAA basketball, the tournament is still all about that march of madness. And welcome back to Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Let me let me wrap things up because I was speaking a lot about one madness in March, namely the NCAA basketball tournament. I want to go to another madness in March, which is NFL free agency. Woo, man, time for Aaron Rodgers to start earning his money, right? The Green Bay Packers trading Devontae Adams to the Las Vegas Raiders. What sources told Adam Schefter of ESPN this past Thursday that the Raiders are sending the Packers their first-round pick, which is number 22 overall, their second-round pick, 53 of this year's draft, which gives Green Bay four picks in the top 60, and they also have their own picks at number 28 and number 59. So, man, remember when we thought that everything was going to be copacetic when Aaron Rodgers came back? When Aaron Rodgers was back into the fold and it was a situation where, hey, man, you know, now it's all about winning themselves that championship. Now it's about situating themselves truly as the top seed in the 
NFC, even though the Rams are not only the defending conference champions, but also the defending Super Bowl champions. But it was almost like a fait accompli in terms of them getting Aaron Rodgers to resign for three to four years. So it was just now we're just going to franchise tag Devontae Adams. The situation I thought from the outside looking in was the relationship between Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams was solid. I remember a story that was told by uh, Adams where him and his wife were driving one night to uh, get some dinner. And Aaron Rodgers called him and was speaking about, you know, what a great teammate he is. And he's the best teammate that he's ever had. And I love you, brother, and all these type of things. And Devontae Adams got so emotional in hearing these words from Rodgers that he told his wife to, hey, you got to start driving because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to lose it here emotionally because of those sentiments that Aaron uh, Aaron Rodgers uh, gave to me. So I, I always thought that this was a situation where, you know, the chemistry and the relationship between Adams and Aaron Rodgers, uh, you know, was even bigger than just football player, the accomplishments that they had on the football field. I thought it was truly a brotherhood between those two in terms of the level of Aaron Rodgers is going to come back, Devontae Adams is going to come back. But it was not the case. It was not the case at all. In fact, there were some reports that it was a situation where it was Devontae Adams who said, you know what, I know Aaron Rodgers is coming back, but I want to leave anyway. And it was a situation where Aaron Rodgers said, I know Devontae Adams is leaving, but I'm going to come back anyway. So how strong truly was the relationship? I'm not saying that they hated each other, but it truly wasn't on the same level as, say, Aaron Rodgers had with uh, Randall Cobb in terms of his friendship and brotherhood off of the football field. So moving forward now, I guess we're going to see exactly, it's almost like the Tom Brady situation with Bill Belichick. Brady going to the Buccaneers, and the argument was who made who, who was more responsible for the dynasty, Belichick or Brady. I guess we're going to say now a guy in Devontae Adams who, I don't know, I don't think his Hall of Fame resume is nearly complete, but you would have to go on the assumption that, you know, another three or four years of playing with Aaron Rodgers and coming close to the production that he's been having ever since he's teamed up with Rodgers, that he would be a uh, pretty strong candidate once his career is over to uh, be eligible to go into the Hall of Fame or have the opportunity to go into the Hall of Fame which will increase greatly because of the numbers and the success as far as individual and team is concerned with Aaron Rodgers. Now he's going to go to the Las Vegas Raiders. He's going to be reunited, and it feels so doggone good to Adams with Derek Carr. Uh, the two guys played together at Fresno State. They are living next to each other in the offseason here, out here in Las Vegas. So we're going to see exactly how great Devontae Adams was, or was it just a situation where, you know what, hey, Aaron Rodgers, great quarterback, all-time great quarterback, and if you take a look at what happened to Devontae Adams after he left the Green Bay Packers, another example of how great of a quarterback Aaron Rodgers was, or was it a situation where now we know in terms of the two-time defending consecutive MVP Aaron Rodgers, well, we now see with Devontae Adams and what he's doing in Las Vegas and what now Aaron Rodgers is doing in Green Bay without his precious Devontae now we know in terms of the responsibility or in terms of the impact that Devontae Adams had on the final chapter in the career of Aaron Rodgers in terms of his greatness, building his greatness, building his legacy and that type of thing. Wendell's World of Sports, 
I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Man, there's a situation now, speaking about March Madness, man, now is a situation where it's almost like, doggone it, man. You take a look at the AFC West, and you take a look at what the Kansas City football team is all about. If you take a look at the acquisition of Khalil Mack made by the Los Angeles Chargers, if you take a look at the acquisition that the Denver Broncos made in acquiring Russell Wilson, and now with the trade for Devontae Adams and with the Las Vegas Raiders now increasing their uh, firepower from the offensive side of the uh, football field. It's almost like a domino effect. It was almost like the three teams almost colluded to say, you know what, we're sick and tired of Kansas City dominating the dominating our division. So they all made moves. It was almost like, you know what, you go ahead and you make this move, I'm going to go ahead and make that move. Oh, you went ahead and did this, I'm going to go ahead and do that to supersede what you did. And it seemed like, oh, Vegas was the last team to take a look and say, oh, okay, you guys went ahead and did this. Oh, you guys, Denver, you went ahead and got yourself Russell Wilson. Okay, we'll go ahead and get ourselves Devontae Adams. There we go. Oh, Kansas City still in our division, and Patrick Mahomes just got married on the beaches of Hawaii, which means, hey, man, with a better wife, you got a better life, which means he's going to be a better quarterback, which means we're going to have to be putting some more pressure on that uh, quarterback named Patrick Mahomes. Okay, we'll go ahead and we'll get Khalil back and see if we can revive and recharge his career. We saw what the Denver Broncos are doing. We've got a division. We're playing in a division where we have Patrick Mahomes, where we have Derek Carr, and we have an emerging franchise MVP type quarterback in Justin Herbert. We ain't going to be winning with Drew Locke. Let's go ahead and swing for the fences and get ourselves at that time the best quarterback that was available that's not being charged or not being accused by 22 women of sexual assault. Let's go ahead and get the best quarterback available in Russell Wilson, which is the Denver Broncos did. So you could be looking at a situation, man, where for the next couple of seasons that the AFC West could be historically great when you take a look at some of the deals. You know, I'm not going to go into in March. I'm not going to go into who's going to win the AFC West because injuries play a factor. We still haven't gotten to the draft yet. So those things are just silly, in my opinion, about who's the best team in the AFC in the AFC West, but just the upgrade in talent that each one of those teams made. And then we move over to the AFC North, and we see what the Cleveland Browns did by acquiring Deshaun Watson. And now you're going to be speaking about the AFC North, which has a division which features Deshaun Watson and Joe Burrow and Lamar Jackson. And then you move to the AFC South, and we just heard reports that the Indianapolis Colts have acquired Matt Ryan. So now you're going to be speaking about a division in the AFC, which is going to be having an emerging superstar, we think potential-wise, in Trevor Lawrence to go along with Ryan Tannehill and now Matt Ryan. The AFC is going to be an absolute bloodbath in terms of who's going to be able to get out of that conference and make it to the Super Bowl. Again, I ain't making predictions. But I know in terms of you take a look at the teams and the, as far as talent-wise is concerned and compare them with the NFC, even with Tom Brady returning, woo, man, it is going to be something else in the AFC. So as I mentioned before, just to end the program here on Wendell's World of Sports Podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, the, the Cleveland Browns went out and got themselves a Watson, went out and got themselves a Deshaun Watson, traded to Cleveland, signed a deal worth somewhere around $230 million. How much of it is guaranteed? A lot. Cleveland gave up three first-round picks and gave up three first-round picks, first-round pick in 2022, 2023, 
2024 as well as a 2023 third round pick and a 2024 fourth round pick. Because the Texans are sending a 2024 fifth round pick to the Browns in the trade as well. So if you just take a look at it from a football standpoint, and again, we, we don't know exactly as terms of the punishment is going to be for Deshaun Watson once everything is settled with these allegations made by these 22 women of sexual misconduct or wherever. So we don't know if the punishment is going to be two games, four games, six games. We, the very least, I would say he's going to do four games. and The very most, he's going to be doing six games. So you're going to be taking a look in a 17-game season. In all probability, Cleveland will not have their franchise quarterback for 11 games. Or excuse me, for six games, they'll have him for 11 games. I don't know what they're going to be doing. I don't know if they still are going to keep a hold of Case Keenum or whatever, but, you know, that's going to be pretty important. So, of course, Cleveland is playing this for the long haul, and if Deshaun Watson lives up to his capabilities as a quarterback or performs like he's been doing throughout his career, career in particular the season of 2020, then it's a situation where, hey, man, let's just hold on. If we can, without Deshaun Watson, if, if he misses six games and we can go two and four or three and three at the very worst and we get Deshaun Watson back, we are still in the hunt. We should still be in the mix to get ourselves in position to get ourselves a playoff berth. Mason Rudolph and the Pittsburgh Steelers and Mitchell Trubisky, that whole rigmarole with the Steelers as far as their quarterback situation is in flux. The Cincinnati Bengals, they greatly massively upgraded their offensive line, so they should be much better. The combination of Joe Burrow to Jabbar Chase should be getting better and better and better. And with Baltimore, you still have the former MVP, Lamar Jackson, in that structure and that organization in Baltimore, which very rarely takes a step back. So it will be interesting to see the amount of time that Deshaun Watson is going to be suspended for. But, uh, you know, it's a situation where, hey, man, when he comes back and he, he starts balling, then Cleveland really has their opportunity to uh, win themselves the Super Bowl. And if you're a Cleveland Brown fan, and I'm speaking about Super Bowls down the road, if you take a look at the offensive line that Deshaun Watson is going to be performing with, if you take a look at the running backs, Cleveland has arguably the two best running backs as far as the running back combinations of Nick Chubb and, um, oh my goodness, and the name who I forgot right now, um, Kareem Hunt. Thank you very much, Kareem Hunt. And the um, in the backfield, man, that's a pretty potent thing for Deshaun Watson. Those play action passes and what you can do off of that, it's going to be um, it's going to be spectacular once Deshaun really gets a moving and really gets a grooving. The thing, which of course we can't kind of ignore the elephant in the room, of course, is this situation with Deshaun and the sexual assault allegations. 22 women um, alleging that he did some pretty disgusting, vile, despicable things. I'm not going to tell him. I'm not going to uh, go in detail about it. You can go ahead and you can Google it if you want to. But uh, what he did in terms of assaulting these women is uh, vile. It's disgusting. It's uh, creepy. It's just nasty. It's, you know, it's all them things times a couple. So, I mean, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm, we're, we're not living in 2005. We're not living in 2010. We're not living in the 21st century anymore. If these women, all 22 of them, 
uh, you know, saying this is what Deshaun Watson did, I think that I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take the word of these of these women and say that uh, this is exactly what Deshaun Watson did. Now, part of the salary, I mean, he's going to probably going to have to be paying a whole lot of women a whole lot of money to uh, go away with this thing so we can get back to be playing football. But, of course, you know, in a situation like this, there's going to be people coming out the woodwork and women's groups and all these type of things with the with the line of if you are a Cleveland Browns fan, if you are a Cleveland if you're a fan of uh, this that and the other, how can you, you know, how can you sit there and cheer for this team and for bringing this guy in and this is terrible and this is horrible and you know, I'm someone from Yahoo Sports, a female columnist for Yahoo Sports to lease uh, Young came out with a column talking about Brown's acquisition of Deshaun Watson proves one thing. There is no bottom for the NFL. The Cleveland Rape Crisis Center this past Saturday in responding to Deshaun Watson joining the Cleveland Browns had a statement in a red. We understand the story surrounding Deshaun Watson joining the Cleveland Browns team is triggering far too many of our friends and neighbors. For those who need additional support, please call Please know Cleveland Rape Cent uh, Crisis Center is available to you 24-7-365. To the community, we say to you, we hear your outrage. We feel it too. Every click, every post, every tweet, every donation sends a clear message. Robin Lochner, an administrator for an online forum called the Cleveland Browns Women's Group, who is against Watson coming to Cleveland, she made a statement saying, is that really the person... We want at the face of the Browns, speaking for myself and the majority of women in my group, it's not. I've said this before, when it comes to sports, and really it's even more than sports. When it comes to a situation like this, the forgiveness, the repentance, or the march toward forgiveness and having this kind of go away, is all going to be dictated on how well Deshaun Watson plays. It's not going to be about what he does off the field in terms of he could go into a press conference and say, hey, I made some mistakes, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I feel terrible, but you know what, I'm going to try to right this wrong, I was in the wrong, I feel terrible, I feel horrible. Now I'm going to be the one that's going to be the advocate to make sure that this doesn't happen to any other, any other ladies and I learn from this mistake and I'm going to do everything humanly possible. I'm going to uh, volunteer my time at this for this group and for that group, and I'm going to apologize profusely every single chance that I get, and I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, I'm going to make donations to women's groups and veterans shelters and rape counselors and blah, 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 blah. He can do all of that. He can do all of that. But if he goes out on the football field, and he's not the quarterback that Cleveland Browns fans thought they were getting, in terms of his performance, if he becomes a disappointment in terms of winning and losing, being the franchise quarterback of a team, and he doesn't measure up or he doesn't reach the expectations of what Cleveland Browns football fans want from this guy, all of this other stuff that he does will be null and void. All of that stuff will not mean diddly in terms of what the majority of the Cleveland community and the Cleveland Browns fans think of him. Now, on the other hand, if he comes out and says, hey, you know what, don't feel like talking about it, not going to talk about it anymore, I'm here to play football, what's done is done because of legal actions, I really can't say anything, I'm going to hide, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to go out and play football, 
and he doesn't spend one iota, he doesn't spend one nickel, he doesn't spend any time whatsoever doing anything to help the women of this community in the Cleveland Browns community or the Cleveland, Ohio community and surrounding areas, if he doesn't do anything concerning that matter and just tries to sweep this under the rug and he goes out there next season and plays like an MVP candidate and let's just say, for instance, he's suspended for six games and the games that he plays in, 11, the Browns are 9-2 and two and 10-1 and one, and he's playing like an MVP, all of this other stuff surrounding sexual assault and everything, it won't be forgotten, but it will be placed on the back, back, back burner. The redemption comes not by your actions in terms of what you do off the field, regardless of the mistakes and regardless of the crimes that you commit off the field. You don't get yourself into the good graces of football fans by doing something off the field to help those people. You do it with your performance on the football field or on the basketball court or on the tennis court or on the ice or on or in the octagon or in the boxing ring or on the baseball field. That's where your that's where your forgiveness really comes. How much how much of an importance, how much responsibility that you have in making us win. Because I'm telling you right now, especially when it comes to football, especially with the Cleveland Browns organization and with the Cleveland Browns fans, a team that hasn't won a championship since 1964, if Deshaun Watson this year can somehow, someway play like a top-tier quarterback and the Cleveland Browns get themselves into a position where they win the Super Bowl, you know that it might be part of the story during Super Bowl week in terms of what Deshaun Watson is coming back from. But the amount of time dedicated to that and the seriousness and the level of honest, open discussion about it will be meaningless because it will all be about Deshaun Watson coming back from a year off because of off-field problems and coming back and still playing like an MVP candidate. And man, what would it mean for the Cleveland Browns to win the championship the first time since 1964? And those guys will roll out uh, Jim Brown, and they'll roll out, uh, I don't know if Sam Reticliano is still living, but they'll roll out Brian Sipe, and they'll get Ernest Binder, and they'll get all Bernie Kosar, and they'll get all these guys back on the football field cheering and applauding and talking about this is so wonderful and this is so great and, and, and all these type of things. And the topic of Deshaun Watson being accused of sexually assaulting 22 women will be put on the back burner. You know it, I know it. You know what country we live in. You know what world we live in. If it's not affecting us, if it's not hurting us, then, hey, man, we can make excuses for everything. We can make excuses for everything when it comes to that. Hell, there's, four, there's 74 million morons who voted for a guy who was talking about he can get away with grabbing women by the pussy because he's a celebrity. And people found that no big deal. 74 million people voted for him regardless, knowing what a scumbag and a sleazeball that piece of shit was. So please, save me your indignation about, oh my goodness, what's going to be happening once they present Deshaun Watson to the Cleveland community. As long as he plays football at a high level, it will be nothing but cheers. The jerseys will be sold, and um, he'll be a legend in Cleveland if he can lead them to a Super Bowl, Super Bowls, and become the best quarterback that Cleveland ever had, even better than Dr. Dr. Frank Ryan. All right, I'm out of here. I am done. Well, thank you very much for listening to my podcast. Remember, 
Go ahead and subscribe. Hit that like button. Leave me a comment. We very much appreciate it. And as I leave, I always like to say, hey, man, could you uh, do us a favor? Can you go ahead and can you have a conversation with somebody of a different race, of a different uh, gender, of a different uh, nationality, different side of the tracks, different financial background, different uh, religion that they worship, loving a different person than you, loving that person of a different gender than you? Could you please have a conversation with those people? Could you have a conversation with someone who's different and give them the respect that they deserve and let them teach you about them? So you can take those jewels, so you can take that gems, those gems, and take that knowledge back to the, back to your side of the tracks and educate those people. So their children, and their children, and their children's children can live in a society where we are truly judged by who we are as human beings, the the character of our, of our, of our being, the love that's in our heart, our willingness to give love and compassion and respect to everybody based on who they are as human beings, not based on race, not based on gender, not based on who they love, not based on what side of the world they're from, not based on anything else except what they are as a human being. If we could do that, man, it would be fantastic. Not too late for my generation, too late for your generation and the generation before, but it's not too late for the younger and the younger and the younger generation moving forward. Let's see if we can do that, shall we? It would be great. Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports, thank you so much for listening. I am out. I am out. Hit me with some music.